relief factor, pain relief that's natural, pain relief that works, and pain relief that attacks the source of the pain. That's the experience of tens of thousands of Americans who are taking Relief Factor right now. See their incredible video endorsements at relieffactor.com and then order your three-week quick starter pack for just $19.95. That's less than a dollar a day. Find out if it can work for you like it works for me by ordering your three-week quick starter pack today. Relieffactor.com, relieffactor.com. Be the next success story. Going deeper on the big issues that matter to you. This is your exclusive podcast, America First, one-on-one, with me, Sebastian Gorka, former strategist to President Donald J. Trump. Welcome, dear friends, to America First, one-on-one, where we get to just get to know our special guests a little bit better and also dig deeper onto the big issues of the day. One of which you can't deny is the rise of wokeism. It's no longer political correctness. It is far, far beyond that. It is an ideology of hatred, of bigotry that has infected not just academe, but also our schools down to the pre-K level. And of course, now, corporate life. Somebody who's mapped that infectious spread of the ideology of wokeness is the author of a brand new book. He is, I tell you. He's almost as hard to get on the show as President Trump, but we've got him just a week after the publication of Woke Inc. Delighted to have Vivek Ramaswamy with us. Vivek, welcome to One on One with America First. Glad to be here. So first things first, uh, let's let's tell those who aren't familiar with the book or with yourself, your journey. It's a fascinating journey, biotech, investment, entrepreneurship, and now your book. So tell uh, our millions of listeners and viewers across America who Vivek is. Yeah, look, I'll, I'll give it to you in uh, a nutshell in a couple minutes. So my parents came to this country in the late 70s and early 80s in Cincinnati, Ohio. I still live in Ohio today. They didn't have much money, but they did have an education, and uh, that's what they helped me and my brother get to. I was born and raised all the way through Cincinnati, went to Harvard for college in 2003. I was a nerdy science guy, so I spent most of my time in the lab. When I graduated, I actually got went in a different direction and got into biotech investing, joined a hedge fund in New York in late 2007, right before the 2008 financial crisis, which was an eye-opening experience for me. And something that I talk about in much more detail in the book, too, and actually I think relates to the topic of woke capitalism. But we'll come back to that. I, uh, I told my bosses three years in that I had never scratched an itch that I had in law and political philosophy, having been a science guy all the way through. So I told them I was leaving and I went to Yale Law School for three years. They did something surprising. They said, actually, I should keep my job and that they would, uh, they would allow me to manage a portfolio from there during those three years. So I did that. I kept my job as a hedge fund portfolio manager. At the same time, I uh, attended Yale Law School, graduated in 2013. And after I graduated, I had a new itch. I I was really irritated by a lot of what I saw in the biopharma industry, incredible managerialism, bureaucracy, something I write about in the book and I think is related to wokeness too. But anyway, that, that actually led me to leave my job as an investor and to start a company, which I started in 2014 called Royvent. And I built the company. I led it as CEO for seven years. It had its ups and downs, as happens in biotech, but thankfully, it went on to be a success in the end. It's now a $7 billion, multi-billion dollar company, and it is a company that has thankfully developed drugs for patients who needed them, including a couple drugs that are now FDA approved. The one I'm most proud of is a drug for prostate cancer. But that being said, I stepped down as CEO earlier this year 
to not only publish this book, but work on, as you said, a different kind of cancer. It is a new disease that is affecting one major institution after the next. And I really felt like it was a disease that threatened the very dream that allowed me to achieve everything I ever have in my life, something that we call the American dream. The idea that no matter who you are or where you came from or what your skin color is, you can achieve anything you ever want in this country. And I truly believe in that. I think it is the defining creed of America. And I think that creed was under attack uh, at behest of not only the new woke movement, but the merger of wokeness with capitalism itself that I believe created a new threat, probably the biggest threat to liberty and prosperity in our country. So that's why I wrote the book. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing now. I wasn't free to speak freely as a CEO, but now I am as an ordinary citizen, and I'm taking advantage of that to the fullest extent to get my message out there. Well, that's a very, very brave decision, yes, uh, to move from being a very successful entrepreneur to grapple with head-on this political infection of uh, really the market environment. We'll talk about how it has affected the market, how it's distorted the supply and demand reality of of what should be just a a science-based activity. But first, you mentioned something that had a big effect on on your own journey, and that was uh, the market crash and the way that the corporate sector dealt with that. Explain the significance. It seems like ancient history now, but why is 2008 Uh, such an important event for us all Americans to understand entrepreneurs and just regular taxpayers? Well, there are so many reasons why the 2008 financial crisis is a fountainhead of learnings for us. I won't go through all of them here. I go through a lot of them in the book. One of them is that when you have social policy guiding investment decisions, that leads to a bubble that often hurts the very people it's supposed to help. And there I'm referring to the agenda of the government fostering home ownership through artificial loans via Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, government policy that said every American needed to own a home. Well, guess what? The people that hurt the most were the people who were lent money that ultimately couldn't afford to buy a home and ultimately were hurt by the crash in the end. But there's a lot of lessons that that I could go on side tangents on. The one that I focus on in the book is I actually think that's when corporate wokeness was born. Because after the 2008 financial crisis, corporations were the bad guys in the eyes of the old left. What the old left wanted to do was to take money from those wealthy corporate fat cats and redistribute it to poor people to help poor people. And agree or not, that's what the old left wanted to do. But there was a new woke left that was emerging right around the same time. Barack Obama was elected as the first black president in 2008. There was a new diversity movement in America. And corporations jumped on it because if you're corporate America or if you're Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street is actually a pretty difficult pill to swallow. But the new woke stuff was easy. You applaud diversity and inclusion. You put some token minorities on your boards. You muse about the racially disparate impact of climate change after you fly in a private jet to Davos. It is a pretty good life. I was in that world, I can tell you. It is not a bad life. But the most important part of the trick was to keep quiet about it because the way it worked is there was a quiet arranged marriage with the new woke left. And the way it worked was, we will lend our money and our legitimacy to advancing your agenda but we don't do it for free, speaking as big business. The thing that we do is we demand that the new Democratic Party, that the new left, look the other way when it comes to leaving our corporate power intact. And that is the trade, the defining trade of the last 10 years. I think it's the scam of our generation. A bunch of big banks got together with a bunch of woke millennials. Together they birthed woke capitalism. 
And that's what allowed them to put Occupy Wall Street up for adoption. But it worked so well that the rest of the corporate sector started jumping on that same trade. Silicon Valley started censoring content that the new woke left did not want to see online. But again, they didn't do it for free. They effectively demanded that the new Democratic Party look the other way when it came to leaving their monopoly power intact. And again, that trade has worked so masterfully that it's allowed companies from Coca-Cola to United Airlines to Nike to Unilever to change the topic of conversation away from their actual business practices, which they'd rather not be talking about, to spouting really, really platitudes about advancing the new woke agenda, but which blow this new brand of woke smoke to avoid accountability and deflect accountability for the kinds of things they'd rather not be talking about. Each side got something out of the trade. I I describe it in the book as an arranged marriage, not one of love, but more like mutual prostitution. But it's working as long as each side gets something out of the trade. And that's where we are today. So I think you've kind of answered the question. We're talking to the author of Woke, Inc., Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, It sounds as if the CEOs really don't believe any of this garbage. They'll lecture us. The CEO of United will come in that stupid ad when you get on the plane and talk about zero carbon emissions as he's jetting around the world in his private jet. Is that your determination that this is this is just uh, making the right noises? But none of these people, not Coca-Cola, not IBM, not Nike, they don't believe any of this garbage or do they? That's so. Eighty percent of it is what you said. Is is that there? It's really a cynical arrangement. It's an arranged marriage. They're saying what they need to say to get by, to aggregate profit and power. The defining rule, the, the cardinal rule number one, is you pretend like you care about something other than profit and power, precisely to gain more of each. That is eighty percent of it. I detail a lot of that in the book. I think it's the defining scam of our century. Was Here's there a where moment? I evolved. Sorry, go go. Carry on, Vivek. Yeah, I was just going to say the remaining twenty percent is actually even more scary than the 80% who are using it cynically. And in those cases, it is not actually people who need to make an extra buck, but people who want to exercise raw power by foisting their own views on everybody else, democracy be damned in the process. And I think that that is something that is even the greater threat to democracy, where you take someone like a Jack Dorsey, all right? He doesn't need another dollar. He has billions of dollars. He doesn't need another dollar. The rate limiter to Jack Dorsey's power isn't the amount of money that he has, It is the scope of what money itself can buy. And in his case, I think he may actually authentically believe in the ideology that he's pushing. It's not to make another buck for Twitter. It is to take advantage of his seat of market power to be able to flex muscle in the marketplace of ideas by deciding what ideas can and can't be debated in our democracy. And while I wrote the book mostly motivated to call out and shine sunlight on the scam, the scammy kind of woke capitalism where corporations are doing it just to make an extra buck, I came out of it realizing that even though that's most of the story, the part of the story that's most frightening is actually the emergence of of the Dutch East India Company here in the United States, where we have powerful corporations that are using their power in the marketplace to exercise power in every other sphere of our lives, sometimes even authentically foisting their beliefs onto us. And sometimes I actually feel that's the most dangerous of all. A fascinating parallel, the modern Dutch East India Company. We will unpack it momentarily with our very special guest here on America First 101, Vivek Ramaswamy, author of Woking. Uh, Vivek, uh, let's unpack that that concept. Uh, For those who aren't familiar, why don't you enlighten us as to the power of the Dutch East India Company, how it basically was an imperial force unto itself, 
uh, and why Absolutely. you see why you see parallels today with these companies that let the truth be told these aren't american companies i mean you know facebook or nike or amazon these aren't american anti- anymore because these are companies that have uh, quote unquote gdps larger than most countries so why have you brought back this 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 ancient uh, construct to de- to describe what's happening today Well, look, these were companies, the Dutch East India Company, for example, that exercised state-like power in their day. They had their own private militia. They had their own currency, echoes of Facebook's cryptocurrency, by the way. We'll come back to that. But there were companies that had their own hospitals. They did social good. They had state-like power. And the American model was to reject that. We did not want the Dutch East India Company to be born in the United States. So we said there's this thing called maximizing shareholder value which said that even though we're going to give corporations great benefits like limited liability, limited liability for their shareholders, which makes corporations incredibly powerful, we have a reverse side of that, which is the grand bargain that says that in return for these great gifts, like limited liability, we demand that corporations stay in their lane and focus on maximizing profit, making goods and services for people who need them, so you stay in the sphere of the market, but leaving other spheres of our lives, like democracy, like our religious lives, like our family lives alone. That was the grand bargain at the inception of the American corporation. We're gonna create Frankenstein's monster, but Dr. Frankenstein is going to keep him in the cage. Well, what's happened now is the monster has left the cage and is now exercising power, not just in the market, but over our democracy and over our politics and in every other aspect of our lives. And I'll tell you, modern Silicon Valley is the Dutch East India Company on steroids, because even though they had a corporate militia, they couldn't control who said what or what thoughts could be acceptable in the sphere of public. That is what Facebook and Twitter and Google do today. <laughs> in a religious sense, I was, I was actually heard of a uh, of a Catholic priest who described the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit of our time as Facebook, Google, and Twitter. That is the level of power that they that they ultimately exercise over not just the products we buy or the ads we see, but the very ideas we are permitted to discuss openly in public. And I'll tell you this: a good measure of the health of any democracy is the percentage of people who actually feel free and are free to say what they actually think in public. And right now we are doing abysmally on that metric, in part because of the abuse of corporate power, both with respect to employing people and and firing people in many cases for saying the wrong thing, but in many cases just using outright force to censor them from being able to express those same views on the internet or in their place of work. And I think that that is the defining threat of our time. Can I... Let me ask you a tough question that you sure. may have identified the answer to in, in all your research. So the, at what, what is the transmission belt of this ideology into the sea level suite? There's one theory that says, well, we've we've created a whole generation of these woke kids who don't have real degrees. It's, you know, global sustainability and gender studies. They can't get any real jobs. So they become employees of the HR departments. And then the HR departments become reflections of themselves, only hiring people who are woke. And I, I like that idea, but I don't think that that, ter- that that doesn't create a Mark Zuckerberg. That doesn't create the woke CEO of United. So where 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 is the the where is the 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 facet of interaction where's the interface where these people who are really at the top of all this who don't have to be beholden to an ideological 
viewpoint where they genuflect, where they surrender to this ideology? Have you identified that, that yeah. transmission point or sure. that, 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 that facet? Great question. So, so there's a couple of different forces at play. It's not one silver bullet of an answer. In one case, you have a lot of people who are occupying the C-suite who are now members of my generation. We're millennials now, many of whom are in their mid or late 30s. What's happening is you have an entire generation of millennials who have always been hungry for a cause, as human beings always have been, hungry for a cause, hungry for purpose, hungry for identity, if you ask me, hungry for meaning. And the things that used to satisfy that moral hunger, ideas like faith and patriotism, and in some cases hard work, have really disappeared. And so we've relocated those quasi-religious instincts to a new secular religion instead. That's the authentic version of it. And now that you're in a seat of corporate power, you merge that religion. You don't think of it as religion, so that's why you allow it to merge with the way you carry out your business activities as well. That's part of it. I think we're also in the middle of the largest intergenerational wealth transfer in history, where the people in my generation, not me personally, but many in my generation, are on the receiving end of it. Now you have a generation of baby boomers that ultimately created a lot of wealth that's now being transferred to a generation of millennials well, guess what? There's two ways to exceed a great man who is your father. One is on his own terms. The other is by being morally superior rather than superior in, in more objectively measurable ways. Morality is subjective. And so you have a lot of people even in family businesses who are inheriting the businesses and now beginning to run the businesses that their father created a generation ago. They're now going more woke as CEOs. That is a new apologist model of capitalism that you see in a lot of family businesses today in the context of a son who necessarily couldn't achieve what his father did, but chose to achieve it through moral superiority itself. And there's a great Austrian economist, Ludwig von Mises, who said a century ago that capitalism actually gives rise to the psychological need for anti-capitalism. And in a certain sense, that's exactly the, the force that we see as play is the anti-capitalist psychology that's born of capitalism itself when you roll it forward a generation that couldn't necessarily stand up to the accomplishments of a generation prior. So I think there's a lot of different forces going on there. I think there's also a force that's inherent to the, the qualia of the woke ideology itself. There's something unique about the woke ideology is that it does not tolerate dissent. In fact, if you disagree with any of the claims that black, let's say black people are inherently disadvantaged, white people are inherently privileged and so on. If you disagree with any of those claims in modern America, you're actually defined according to the woke movement as a racist, even if you don't know it. If you say I'm not racist today, that means you are racist. If you say that all lives matter, somehow that means you believe that black lives don't matter. If you capitalize the W in my white or you fail to capitalize the B in black, you're also a racist. And I will tell you, there is no greater damnation in modern America, whether you're a CEO or an everyday worker, there's no greater damnation than to be called a racist. So when given the choice between being tarred with that scarlet R, even if you're a powerful CEO, or pledging allegiance to this new religion, everyday Americans at every level are bending the knee. So, so those are some examples of the forces that I think have conspired to create this new culture of conformism. It sounds to me as if we're talking about the, the latest iteration, the latest version of, you know, the, the ethno-race-baiting, race-hustling of the Al Sharptons of the 1980s and 90s, that if you're a corporation, uh, you better behave yourself or we're going to accuse you of being racist, and this is just a more sophisticated version of that. Don't get in trouble. Give money to BLM or Nike will be deemed racist. Uh, shall That's we... Right. Um, Right? Does that sound, is that, is that, is that an oversimplification? It's the diversity industry. It's the woke industrial complex. It's a very profitable industry. 
it's a form of blackmail, but it's working. And I would say that the likes of Ibram Kendi and Robin D'Angelo have jumped on that and made a small fortune for themselves. But I think the rest of America has suffered as a consequence. He's the author of Woke Inc. It just came out last week. I already have my copy. Get yours today. We're continuing the discussion. Vivek, can I add one more theory um, that I heard from somebody else that kind of I, I think sounds intuitive, that if you look at these mega, mega billionaires today, it's a very different wealth accrual model from the way America was built. The, the Zuckerbergs, the Jobs, um, the, the, the Dorseys uh, acquired their billions in a fashion which is just incomparable to the Carnegies or the Fords. The Carnegies, the Fords, the so-called robber barons actually had to build stuff, had to work their ass off. In many cases, we're talking about geeks who were in the right place at the right time. They say of Steve Jobs, he never actually invented anything. He just capitalized on somebody else's great ideas and, and put them together. Is it, is it because these, these individuals have come at wealth relatively, comparatively so easily that they don't understand the real way that capitalism works, therefore they are so easy to denigrate it? Is that possible? Is that also a possible ingredient? I hear you there, and I think that that's an orthogonal, separate discussion that we can have about the experience of creation of wealth in the 21st century versus in the 19th or in the 20th or 19th centuries. I don't know that that gets to the heart of corporate wokeness, but but I will tell you this. I mean, I think there's a lot of other forces at play in that other discussion we could be having. You know, I think the rise of the Federal Reserve is also a big is plays a big role in. Please unpack that. Please unpack that, Vivek. Perpetually easy money has ultimately created asset classes that allow people who own assets, including stocks, to be able to sell smaller percentage of the shares that they own to be able to actually enjoy everyday wealth. So, so today, I think part of the reason the stock market is at an all-time high is because the Fed is in the business of printing money, and those dollars have to go somewhere. They chase assets. They chase stocks, including, including high beta stocks like those of technology companies that then allow people who own shares of those companies to sell, a, like Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey, to sell a very tiny portion of those shares to buy a mansion or a boat or a fifth private jet in a way that was really different in eras prior where you didn't have the Federal Reserve propping up asset prices from, from a central banking perspective. So I think those get those issues get pretty complicated pretty quickly, are worth unpacking, because I think those are really important and distinctive features of 21st century capitalism that didn't exist in prior centuries. But I think as it pertains to the phenomenon of corporate wokeness, I think that there's a slightly different confluence of factors at work. I think some of it is the inherency of the cultural power of wokeism to fill a moral void that we used to fill with more powerful ideas, as I said earlier, like faith and patriotism. When man loses a religion that he believes in, he doesn't lose his religious impulses. He just locates those religious impulses to a new religion instead. That's what's happened with modern wokeism. That's, what, that's what's allowed it to infect every one of these institutions at once. I also think that if you want to talk about an external player who's sort of pulling the strings from behind the curtain, I actually think that's China. China understands the woke game far more deeply than any of us do. There's even a Chinese word for wokeness, baitsuo. It literally refers to woke white people. Well, they invented it along, along with Marx. They invented it, right, Vivek? Absolutely. Absolutely. They know how this game is played, but now they're using it to, their, to strengthen their own geopolitical position on the global stage because you see the way the game works now is if you're Disney or you're Nike or you're the NBA or you're BlackRock, you relentlessly criticize the United States, 
but you do not say a peep about true human rights abuses in China. So you criticize microaggressions over here. You stay silent about macroaggressions in, in China. In fact, you may even praise China as they commit some of the largest human rights atrocities we have seen in the last century since the Third Reich of Germany. And yet that actually undermines the geopolitical position of the United States because it attacks our greatest asset of all. That is not our nuclear arsenal. It is our moral standing on the global stage. And when the new international arbiters of moral justice are consistently criticizing the United States while praising China, that actually creates a false moral relativism between Chinese nihilism and American idealism. And when you create that false equivalence, that's actually a winning trade for, for Chinese nihilism over American nihilism, uh, over American idealism. So I think that is something that's underappreciated. It's one, I think this is the first book that actually exposes some of these geopolitical consequences of wokeism, some of which were on display last week in Afghanistan, by the way. I think there was one way exactly that President Biden could have averted the disaster, which was ultimately telling the Taliban that we will decimate you, we will annihilate you if you renege on your prior agreements as we exit Afghanistan. He didn't do it. Even if he did do it, the Taliban would know that he couldn't make good on his threats. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the ramifications of uh, the woke infection of the U.S. military, perhaps the most disturbing of all. Uh, in the meantime, there's one person out there who's been doing the most to fight political correctness and to get to the truth of what happened last November. As a personal favor to all of you listening and watching, please support America's Mayor Rudy Giuliani. The woke mob wants to destroy him. They want to strip him of his law licenses and bankrupt him. Will you support him? Please go to Rudy. GiulianiFreedomFund.com. That's Rudy GiulianiFreedomFund.com. Let's help Rudy the way that he helped New York and America after September the 11th. Thank you so very, very much. Um, what, one, one thing you mentioned previously, Vivek, that I'd just like to do a little tangential thing on is you mentioned crypto. Uh, is crypto a, a, a complicating factor? Does it make wokeness worse, or better? I'm sure von Mises and Hayek would have questions about the actual intrinsic value of, uh, of the quote-unquote mining that is done in people's basements with cryptocurrency. Does it have a ramification for woke ink and for all that we're witnessing? You know, I, I don't think it has direct ramifications. It is something that is I, I view as an amplifier of underlying forces already in the sense that if you have another currency, a currency is nothing more than a language to denominate the price of an underlying asset. You know, if you, if you think about it, the dollar is just a piece of paper. Even gold is really just another form of paper. You could, you could view the rise of cryptocurrencies as yet another form of paper. But paper only denominates the value of underlying true assets. And I think that the real question is, what are those true assets worth? And what I worry about in the world of corporate wokeness is that those assets are going to be worth less. And one of those assets if I may speak metaphorically, is actually American democracy itself. It's worthless when you have a small group of elites, CEOs, investors, et cetera, determining the moral answers to our most pressing normative questions rather than our democracy at large, where every person's voice and every person's vote is weighted equally. So here's the question nobody has managed to answer for me, and I'm going to put you on the line right now. Because you wrote sure. the book, literally. You, you, made, you created this amazing organization, Rovent. You're, you're a biotech entrepreneur, but you said enough is enough, and you wanted to you know, bang the drum, blow the trumpet to say this is a true disease that's eating away at, at, at not just the market system, but also, you say, the reputation of, of our republic. So here's the thing that nobody's managed to tell me. Why don't market forces themselves? 
contain the inherent answer. Uh, at yeah. some point, won't people say, Great question. Uh, screw Amazon, screw Starbucks, screw the NFL. Uh, I'm not buying your product. And then at some point, will the CEOs stop being suicidal when it comes to their profits? Or are we just forever hostages? Because as you said, this is a quasi-religion. Like, like, you know, the global warming environmentalists, they want meaning. They've denied the existence of God, but they're finding meaning by kneeling at NFL matches. So, so am I being uh, uh, overly optimistic that the, the supply and demand and reality sooner or later has to slap the C-suite in the face? So I have a very clear answer to this in the book. There's actually a series of answers, but the most important one is that the free market that you and I idealize does not exist today. And I mean that very literally because of government intervention in that market. There are enough distortions of the market, legislatively codified distortions that prevent the market from equilibrating in the way that it otherwise would if it were a truly free market. I'll just give you one example. Let's talk about in the labor market, in the workplace. Today, you cannot discriminate as a company in the United States on the basis of race or sex or religion or national origin. And as of the Supreme Court's ruling in Bostock last year, sex also includes sexual orientation. Yet you can engage in rampant discrimination, as I believe is happening in many companies across the country today, on the basis of political belief. So my view is this. Either we don't have protected classes at all, or we apply those standards even-handedly and we ultimately protect political belief as well, adding political expression to the list of protected classes alongside race and sex and religion and national origin. Because I say, if you can't fire somebody or de-platform somebody from social media because they're black or Muslim or gay or white or Christian or Jewish or whatever, you should not be able to de-platform them or fire them just because they're an outspoken conservative. And that is not an academic issue. It is happening directly or indirectly every day in this country. If it can happen to the 45th president of the United States, it can happen to anybody. And so I actually think that's not just an act of hypocrisy. Part of the reason the administrative bureaucracies in HR departments across the country ended up becoming as bloated as they did began with compliance with the civil rights statutes, race, sex, anti-race, anti-sex, anti-religious discrimination. But that bureaucracy then took on the mantle of proactive anti-racism training on its own, which in turn had no tolerance for dissent to the uniformly progressive agenda that had nothing to do with racial discrimination in the first place. So that's a big part of the story of how we got to how we are, is the un, is the uneven-handed application of actual laws that distorted the way the free market works. Section 230 is another one that's on the same list. It is a federal statute that immunizes private companies from facing tort liability in the states for taking down material that is, and this is in the language of the statute, it's staggering, material that is otherwise constitutionally protected. It was a good example of the government going through the back door using a statute to immunize companies to do indirectly what the government could not do directly under the Constitution, namely to take down speech that it found offensive. So that's a real distortion, giving a certain class of companies immunity from otherwise a tort system that governs the free market to be able to say that they're protected from a class of action. Well, what I say, is that we need new solutions that meet the 21st century, not just reciting slogans we memorized about the free market from 1980, acknowledging that that free market doesn't exist today. Instead, we need to do things like amend Section 230 and say that if you ultimately are protected by the federal government, 
Well, maybe you have a free market, you don't get that protection, that's great. But if you're gonna claim that form of government protection, then it comes with strings attached, including being constrained by the same limitations as the federal government itself, including the Constitution of the United States, including the First Amendment. If you're gonna have anti-discrimination provisions against race or gender or religion, you can't discriminate against somebody for their political beliefs either. Look at what's happening on the climate front. The climate czar for President Biden's administration, John Kerry, is now boasting about the fact that there are elements of the Green New Deal they could not get through Congress, that they're now using indirectly his relationship with banking CEOs to stop lending to projects like drilling in the Arctic, et cetera, that aren't illegal, but are effectively having government use private parties to stop them from being able to continue carrying it out anyway. This is the way crony capitalism works today. It's not crony capitalism 1.0, where big business would, gov would bribe government officials effectively, directly or indirectly, to do their bidding. Now it works in reverse, where actually big government is bribing big business to do its own bidding instead. And so I think that we live in a moment where you know, Republicans and, and conservatives or whatever have spent the last 40 years defending the castle of capitalism from the front door without recognizing that that castle was invaded by the back door from forces ranging from the Communist Party of China to the woke left. And the defining challenge for the future of the conservative movement is how we sterilize that castle, but without burning the whole thing down. And I see a wing of the Republican Party that says we want to look the other way and pretend like the problem doesn't exist and recite those slogans from 1980. I see a different wing of the party emerging that says this is a real problem. They're right about it, but they want to burn the whole thing down. And I think the defining challenge for the future is how we do neither of those things, but ultimately sterilize the castle without just saying burn the whole thing down. Wow. I'd like to do another couple hours with this guy. Couple of questions left. In the meantime, if you enjoy our new America First one on one, uh, subscribe. Don't forget to uh, send us uh, a little thumbs up if you're watching us on Rumble. Rumble.com slash Seb Gorka is the YouTube alternative. You can also get uh, audio versions. America First, look for my name, America First. Uh, Vivek. You use this analogy of the castle that has been taken from within. Here's the question to you. Can we save the castle? Is capitalism not so utterly bastardized and perverted? As you say, when banks can be politically convinced behind the scenes to drop the accounts of gun manufacturers or oil drilling companies... Can government solve that? Can, can, oh, no, no, no. That is, can, can politics can politics solve that, Vivek? So that's the that's the right that the, the rephrased framing was the right way to put it. Look, that is what the whole book is about. The book is about how we not save capitalism from big government. That was the challenge in 1980. This is how we save capitalism from itself, and that's a much more complicated challenge. That is what this book is all about, and I think it paves what I think of as possibly the defining philosophy for the future of the conservative movement, something that I think is actually lacking today. So I'm an optimist. I think the answer is yes, but it is complicated. It requires first a recognition that the biggest threat to liberty and prosperity in America today is not just big government, that is only half the story. It is this new hybrid of big government and big business that is far more powerful than either one alone because it can do what the other one cannot on its own. That is the woke industrial complex. 
That is a new Leviathan that is far more powerful than what Thomas Hobbes envisioned 400 years ago. It is far more powerful than what our own founding fathers envisioned 250 years ago. They were geniuses in setting up a three-branch system of government with checks and balances. What they did not envision was a fourth branch office in places like Silicon Valley that operate outside the bounds of the constitutional constraints without term limits applied to the new monarchs and plutocrats like Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg. Yet that is the world we live in today. We need new philosophies, new dogmas, new mantras to find our way forward. My favorite Republican actually spoke 160 years ago, Abraham Lincoln, when he said the dogmas of a quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. I say the dogmas of 1980 are inadequate to address the unique challenges of 2021. The conservative movement needs to wake up to that. By the way, I think the left needs to wake up to that too because uh, every bit of what I'm writing about here ought to be a concern to a classical liberal every bit as much as a classical conservative. What we really need is not even a new conservative movement, a new American movement around these ideas. That's what the book is all about. It's funny you say that, and, and, and it is a delight, let me just say, it is, it is truly a delight to talk to somebody who is, who is as well-read as you are. You're definitely not a man just in your business lane or the author's lane. You, you also have that philosophical grounding that makes it a delight to talk to, and hopefully you'll, you'll come back on our show. I was uh, at a, a dinner, a very illustrious group of individuals, don't know what I was doing there, who were all, in, all involved with the original Reagan tax cut, the massive tax cut cut and it was a celebratory dinner for the 30th anniversary and of course we started talking about politics today and and I had to stop at one point and I I guess rather rudely say gentlemen ladies it's not 1981 now okay it's just not 1981 God bless Ronald Reagan. I grew up under Maggie Thatcher, St. John Paul II, St. John Paul II, absolute heroes who won a Cold War. But it's not 1981. The, the things they were fighting, they couldn't even imagine would occur. So the idea that we just revivify some tools from 30 years ago and we'll be fine and dandy is absolutely asinine. Um, okay, here's, here's one last question. Everybody has to read Woke Inc., from Vivek Ramaswamy, you need to follow him on Twitter as well. Also, check out his website. Is there a role for uh, it's Vivek G Ramaswamy? Um, is there a role for the average citizen, for the person who's not a successful biotech entrepreneur, national radio show host, uh, uh, state politician, national politician? When when you look at the fact that you know it, Afghanistan fell, in my opinion in large part before, because of not woke ink, but woke military, right? The, 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 the Mark Milley's saying, critical race theory is great. I don't know what it is, but West Point should teach it. I'm white. White rage is important. When he should have been start studying jihadi rage, when he should have been understanding the rage of the Taliban to take down uh, the country where 9-11 was orchestrated. So the, the idea that we, we, we were so... A strategic is a function of ideological perversion of our military as much as it is of anything else. So um, what role is there for the average American? Do we boycott Amazon? How do we begin? Is there a role? Look, I'm not a I'm not a huge fan. I'm not a huge fan of consumer boycotts or the use of market power in return, because I think that is using the same toolkit of the other side. I define cancel culture as the use of force to supplant free speech and open debate as a mechanism of settling political questions. The left is mostly guilty of it today. I don't want to see the right ultimately get infected by the left and see this culture war end, as T.S. Eliot might have said, not with a bang, but with a whimper. That's not what I want to see. It's one of the things I actually worry about. 
I think the right answer is for people to start speaking out freely again. And I will give any person here listening to this call an assignment to be able to say that when you believe you are the only person in the room who has the belief that you do, you have never had a civic responsibility more important than today saying what you actually believe in an unvarnished way. And my commitment to you in return is that if you do that, chances are you're gonna find that you actually weren't the only person in the room who believed what you did. Courage can be infectious, but right now cowardice has become infectious instead. We have a culture of fear in our country, fear of losing your job, fear of your kid getting a bad grade in school, fear of becoming a pariah in your own community that has completely supplanted our culture of free speech. It is reinforced by corporations. It is now reinforced by the government. And the civic responsibility of every American, it's what I say and write in every book that I sign for people today, is to speak freely. And once we start talking openly again, I think that is the beginning of the, the first step of the, the beginning of the end to this ultimate cultural revolution whose consequences we suffer today. Not a Marxist cultural revolution, but a wokest one in the United States. Instead, I think that the better way forward, it's what I lay out in the book, there is a path forward, I'm an optimist. I think if the last decade was about obsessing over and celebrating our diversity and differences as a people, so be it. The next decade can still be about celebrating those few ideas that bind us together as one people. And at the top of that list is both the American dream and free speech. This is a country where you don't have to choose between the two. You get to have both. You shouldn't be able to choose. You shouldn't be forced to choose between speaking your mind freely and putting food on the dinner table. This is the country where you get to enjoy both of those things at once. That's what America is all about. That's what we need to revive. That's what the book is all about. It's why I wrote it. Well, it took a long time to get him on the show, but it was worth the wait. It is a true inspiration talking to you guys. You've got to follow this man, Vivek G. Ramaswamy, on Twitter. You've get to get, got to get the book Woking. And if you are in the swamp next time, Vivek, please, uh, please do uh, come and join us in studio for more, uh, more uh, what shall we say? Not prognostication, diagnosis of what's happening and what needs to be done about it. I'm Sebastian Gorka. You've been listening to America First one-on-one. -on -one. Keep your head on a swivel. Watch your six. Hold the line. Never give up. Never give in. And stay frosty. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.